Now, if you've brought your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the book of Acts? It's Acts chapter 17, and it's page 1113. Acts chapter 17, and uh, we start at verse 24. Acts chapter 17. This is Paul in Athens, and he's summoned to speak before the Areopagus, these intellectual Athenians. Verse 24, and this is his response to that invitation. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said we are his offspring therefore since we are God's offspring we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by man's design and skill no in the past God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere To repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given us proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. End of the sermon. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Amen, and I'm sure God will shed some light on this part of his word. We've been pursuing this um, part of uh, Acts 17, and this is our final um, encounter with it tonight, and we're using uh, the, the reference there in verse uh, 27, that phrase, though he, God, is not far from each of us, as Paul presents his case. So we stay with Paul as he is invited to speak 
at the Areopagus. It's a sort of, if you like, a more formal speaker's corner as you used to have in Hyde Park or in other areas where open debate took place. But here is Paul with little time to prepare his material. It's not like a sermon. He hasn't got a, a script. Chances are he hasn't got notes, as far as we can tell. He's invited to come. He goes and he presents this response. And yet, you can see there that um, Paul speaks and every word counts. They may well have said, we'll give you so much time. It's a bit like uh, when uh, we had to speak at the parish council. They have rules. They start with five minutes and five minutes, no more. Uh, you can do it within less, but no more, and you have to sit down. It may well be in that sort of context that he had to present his case. And so, he, he didn't have the luxury of thinking through or embellishing words. He had to be clear and concise and specific. And four things stand out in terms of his method for a moment. Let's just look at this very quickly. The first is this. And how important this is, if we have opportunity, if it's in a formal context or an informal one, or in conversation, when it comes to somebody asking you about uh, the, the living faith that you have, well, the first thing is he starts where they were. Now, that might be quite a, a, a frightening thing sometimes when we talk to people about our faith. Increasingly, with the secularizing of our society in this country, often we find it difficult to know exactly where people are. The, the, if we were to compare the previous events where Paul is in Thessalonica, is in Berea, well, he had a reference point. It was easier. He could connect with them straight away because they had the Old Testament. And he could say, our prophets have said. But what does he do now? It's a different reference point. There's no synagogue here. It's before the Areopagus. So he starts where they were. And in terms of sharing our faith, it it's, can be quite a challenge to know exactly where people are at. It's a great challenge for us. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that he delivered his message with clarity. You can see that in verses 24 to 28. You can see how he's developing a, a theme. And he begins with the God who made the world and everything in it. And in the context of Athens, where the secular historians say there were more gods than people, more idols than occupants. That's a very specific statement to provoke thought. He develops his theme clearly, even though he knows it's in conflict with what many of them believed. Thirdly, he used relevant illustrations. Now, one of the things that, it's been a long time now, um, in, in homiletics when we were at, at college and they only started to introduce um, a very basic uh, recording of what it was to, to speak in the homiletics class and you had uh, a recording of yourself and you had to go through the, the, the embarrassment of watching it and to be analysed. It was in college and, and so on. It wasn't so much to be um, clever but it was to see how you prepared your material and how you used illustrations. And illustrations were often referred to as windows. You're building a structure. 
Now, some sermons are just all structure and no windows. Some sermons are all windows and no structure. And somehow you need, you need a balance of both. So what does Paul do? He has a window into their thinking. So he quotes here um, from their own poets in verse 28, for in, in him we live, move, and have our being. We are God's offspring. Now he'll develop that. And that, even that is subject to um, misunderstanding. Nevertheless, he does that. He quotes um, from Arathus, the, the Greek poet, and he moves from Zeus to Jesus. He begins where they are and he moves them on. And he speaks about this Jesus who is alive, who rose from the dead. Well, the resurrection was... Um, Something that they found very difficult in Greek thinking. To them it was almost repulsive. Who wants to live again? With all of the, the ailments and the diseases and the problems that blight humanity. No thank you. Human resurrection in a way, I think you have a sympathy with that. But what he's talking about is the resurrection body of Jesus Christ which we will have. Paul doesn't have time to develop that. And then thirdly and lastly, he provokes a response. That is so important. To provoke a response. Perhaps the worst thing that can happen, whether we're in church or we're listening to someone's view, is that we can leave and we are indifferent. It might be the fault, and often it may well be, of the speaker but it might be the fault of the person who has come already, who has prejudged everything that's going to happen, whether it's church or what have you, and say, my mind's made up, don't even inform me of facts. He provokes a response. It's very important that when we come like this, that we make our response. So, those were the four. That's his approach. Now, don't forget the context. It wasn't easy. This is not for the faint-hearted. It's, it's, the context is one of politics, of religion, and philosophy. And you, you get into the sort of atmosphere, if you look back at verse 18, there's a, a prevailing sense of cynicism. It's very hard to speak sincerely from the heart when people have uh, cynicism towards what you're going to say, even before you say anything. So you see in verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, he hasn't said anything yet, what is this babbler trying to say? That's not an easy context to speak. So there it is, that's where you have this culture of cynicism and these polarized thoughts. So, that's the approach, that's the context. What I want to do now is to set out three things that Paul highlights. Three main issues that stand out. I, I don't doubt that there are a lot more, but the three will suffice. And we look at them progressively in Paul's response. So, verses 24 to 26, Paul speaks about here the glory of God. We are not accidents. Even the most cynical, idolatrous person that walks this earth, is God's offspring. We have the stamp of the Creator upon us. That's why we should value supremely human life. The glory of God, verses 24 
to 26 as it is reflected in the creation. And in a way, reading Psalm 24 collectively like that was a reminder that the earth is the Lord's. Now, every thinking person, whatever culture, religion, background, innately will, at some point in life, ask some of these questions. Who am I? Really? Uh, We're blessed to know that all of us have a unique, distinctive DNA. We are unique. Who am I? And, And... why am I here? Where do I come from? What, what, an average length of time, some more than others, what's it about? And when I breathe my last, where, do I, where am I going? Where am I going? Now what Paul does is to connect with that sort of thinking, and it doesn't matter who or where you are, I, I, I'm sure you can engage with people very quickly. And Paul indirectly answers by affirming the God of glory. Yes, you see, the glory of God is mirrored in creation. You, you have this in um, Psalm 19 and, and verse 1. Just, just think about this. Here is the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. This is what Paul is referring to. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. So there's no excuse that even people here who who are idolatrous in their culture, yet here is the God who is speaking, Paul is saying. And look at verse 3. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. One of the things that uh, I used to do when people were applying to be Wycliffe members was... Uh, that they had to ask a set of standard questions. They do it differently now. And one question that always troubled people was this. What about people who never heard the gospel? Well, yes and no. In a sense, everybody has heard about God. And God proclaims his character and nature in creation. So even the unevangelized people have some knowledge of this great creator, enough to be held accountable. But of course, is that an excuse for not wanting to translate the Bible in the language of the people. You see, it's a teasing question. But in verse 4 of of Psalm 19, their voice goes out into all the earth, the words to the ends of the earth, and so on and so forth. So, you see what Paul is doing. He said, yes, yeah, you are. You've got this idol, and you've got that one, and it's that shape, and this shape, and it does this and that, and keep your fingers crossed, and touch wood, and hope everything will be all right. And every idol, for every experience of life, And Paul almost sweeps it aside in a sense and says, here is the glory of God. Look around you. Look in the heavens. He's speaking to you. There's no excuse. How about that? Paul indirectly affirms the glory of God, the heavens, his wonder, his majesty. And then, by doing that, he is saying something that is different to their idols. That God is not detached or distant or can be appeased or manipulated to do things for you. His glory cannot be contained in temples made with hands or images done by people. The glory of God, 
the creation. Whatever, you know, the Big Bang and all this sort of thing. And we try to rationalize that. God is the creator and he reveals his glory and it's not an accident. Bear in mind the cynicism of the people who are listening to him. And think of people today. Think of how people have been indoctrinated uh, with evolution to do away with God, to do away with the uniqueness of mankind. Secondly, he speaks about the goodness of God, that this God is good. And he's good in his providence. He provides when we don't even realize it. See in verses 20, 27 and 29. Therefore, okay, what's, you know, it's a good question to ask when you, when you have this in your Bible. What is it there for? Now, now he's going on to his application. Yes, there's the glory of God. But look, here's the goodness of God. How? In his providence. What? Well, he works in ways that you don't understand. He's the provider and he's the sustainer of all things. So he created things and he continues to sustain things. And this is the point. We need God. He doesn't need us. He loves us. He doesn't need us. Sometimes when we think that we are the center of the universe... Just remember God's providence. We need him. And strangely he loves us. And by his grace and his mercy and love he is the giver of good things. Every good and perfect gift from him. And as you read verse uh, 27 he says... God did this. Why did he do it? Well, he did it for this supreme reason. That men and women should seek him and perhaps reach out for him. He's not far from God is not elusive. He's not hiding. He's not difficult to find. I've lived long enough to hear people say, well, I can't understand God. What they're really saying is that I want God to fit my, my prejudice, my thinking, my needs. You might live and die like that and never really know this God. The goodness of God in providence, in grace and love and mercy. And God's goodness leads us to one great encounter, to repentance. The most precious gift, the metanoia, the turning point, whereby we enter into a covenant relationship. Yes, we are his offspring by creation, but now by grace. What we call the new birth, a new life. God's goodness. What is, why is he so good? Because he leads us to a change of heart. And that's our greatest need. A heart change. If you turn to Romans uh, chapter 2, you'll see that Paul develops this theme within, within that Roman society, which was showing a bit like ours now, showing shine, signs of, of decay and and, and, and moral despair. Romans 2 and verse 4. 
Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing one thing, that God's kindness, patience, tolerance leads you toward repentance? Question. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done, and so on and so forth. Resist God's goodness Frustrate his providence and we store up his judgment when we breathe our last. Now, of course, that is a message that our society, indeed everyone, not least Paul's congregation, find utterly repulsive. But it's the only way. And it's God's way and it's not our way. And Paul points to the Greek poet Aratus um, and says, yes, we are all natural seekers. That's, that's how he connects. You see that in verse 27. You come back to it. God did this so that we might seek him. He, he's given us little vistas of himself that we might discover more. We are natural seekers. <coughs> and he also says that we are natural children of God. By creation. So in verse 28 to 30. For in him we live, move and have our being. Therefore since God's, we are God's offspring. We should not think of the divine as being like gold or silver. And invent our ways. And have a sort of a syncretism. A bit of this, a bit of that and a bit of that. And we'll put it all together. Potpuri religion if you like. No, no. Do you see what he's doing? Oh, little wonder he's going to come into, into conflict, as you shall see in a moment. So there it is, the glory of God. He's the creator. He's the unmoved mover. And, it, and the issue isn't, do we believe in him? The issue is, does he believe in us enough to bring us to repentance? That's the point. And God's providence, it's kind and large, it's bountiful and generous, and it's beyond our understanding, and it is a great mystery. And he does move in mysterious ways, performing his wonders despite us. And the last thing that Paul mentions here is this. The grace of God. It's a great theme of the Bible, isn't it? The grace of God. In these concluding verses. And in the glory of God, it's creation. In the goodness of God, he's the provider. In the grace of God, He's a saviour. He's come to seek and to save the lost. That really means that he is the creator and provider, but he's also the judge. He's the judge of all the earth. And you remember Abraham's dilemma, don't you? He says, how can God pour out his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes to him, what if there are 50 righteous people? Could you condemn it with 50? What if there are... And he gets... He tries to negotiate with God and eventually he says, the God of all the earth will do right. Though it may not seem like that to me. 
and he has to trust him. And so do we. We must. Well, if we don't, we can put up our own idols, the idols of modernity or these from Athens, whatever. And when you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, ask them to save you then. So it's the grace of God. He's a saviour. And God holds back his judgment on all sin. And, and here Paul is bringing in something that I don't know whether they would fully understand. That it is in anticipation of Jesus, the saviour, who will bear our punishment so that we escape the judgment of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's as if Paul says, now do you know him? It's actually about him. See in verse 31, there it is. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. How do you know? Paul says, he has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. The resurrection. And as I've said, the Athenian mindset. The resurrection. Why, why be brought to life only to die again? No thank you. To be a prisoner in this body subject to, to death and decay and disease? No thank you. No thank you. But it misses the point, doesn't it? And it's, it's very easy to miss the point. It is this glorified resurrection body, a new order, a new creation, to be like the Lord Jesus. So there it is. That's what he does. What's the response? Well, three, essentially, when you, when you, when you look at this. So in verse 32, Paul's finished. He sat down. And verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection, then some of them sneered. They said, no, thank you. Keep it. If you have been with elderly parents, as I have, and I know many of you have been, and you, 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 you see the decline of years and the impact of old age and mind and body and personality, to go through that again, no, thank you. Got a point, haven't they? That's not what we're saying here. The glorious new creation, the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. Some missed the point. They sneered. And cynicism is not far from our experience as then. But the second, some maybe almost with a sense of sort of Superiority, they're interested. He said, yeah, we, yeah, we'll talk about that again. We want to hear again on this subject, some say. But how do you know? How do you know? Some, it's, it's a phrase that's used from time to time about people who we say, they're on a journey. We should ask them, a journey of faith, we should ask them, what is the destiny? What's your goal? 
Some are interested. But a few believed. A few believed. And so they are, they are named here Dionysius and Damaris and a number of others. But there is no record of a church being established in Athens. There was in Berea, there is in Thessalonica and these places. Maybe cultural cynicism does grieve the spirit to such a degree that when our Lord once said he could do no great works there because of their unbelief. It wasn't his lack of purpose or power. Hard to know, isn't it? Those are the responses. I hope that ours is <coughs> to believe, to trust, to repent, and to come again to this Lord Jesus. God is not far from each of us. He is not. So what should we do? We seek him. We call upon him. And we trust him. Maybe, even tonight for the first time, seek him. One of the strange things that you discover when you do you find he's been seeking you all the time. And call upon him. One of the things you realize is that he has been calling you. And to ask for his forgiveness. Only to discover that he has more than provided in the Lord Jesus. And Jesus would say to us, this is my body which is broken for you. Often as you eat of this bread, drink of this cup, often as you seek me, call upon me, trust in me, all over again, 